You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. In the last decade, highway safety administrations in countries all around the world have started to release what are known as shock ads to the public in which they highlight the dangers of distracted driving. And these shock ads are very graphic and disturbing. And they're meant to stop us in our tracks and to compel us to consider the gravity of distracted driving. With the advent of smartphones, text messaging, and the increased consumption of online video content, it's very easy to get distracted. How many of you have ever texted and drive? Uh Uh-huh, I'm glad we got some truth tellers in here today. I got a message for you. Stop it! Okay, the sermon's not about that, but don't do that. Because according to the data, distracted driving is the number one cause of automobile accidents. Now, here's the thing. When they started to release these shock ads, there were many people who expressed offense. They took offense at these videos. And at least one of these traffic safety administrations replied to those who took offense with this, with this word. They said, it's better to be offended by the truth than to suffer the tragedy that results from distracted driving. Now, in our text for today, the Apostle James gives us his own version of a shock ad in order to highlight the dangers of distracted faith. With graphic imagery and direct speech, James wants to stop us in our tracks and compel us to consider the gravity of of a distracted faith. To consider the devastation that we can bring on ourselves and on others when we are not focused in our faith. When it comes to our spiritual journey, we know how easy it is to get distracted by possessions, money, and material goods, don't we? We know what it's like to be distracted by the external conditions of our lives to the neglect of our inner life. And we all know what it's like to be distracted and to lose focus on who God really is and what God's really like. In my personal and pastoral experience, one of the greatest causes of spiritual emotional and relational crashes is distracted faith. And as we listen to the teaching of James, it may be that you find yourself offended because James is direct. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't sugarcoat it or soft pedal it. It may be that you find yourself offended by James. And to you, I imagine that James would say, it's better to be offended by the truth than to suffer the tragedy that results from a distracted faith. So today, I'm going to preach on the subject of a focused faith. A focused faith. And there are three points that I want you to take with you this morning. Here they are. We must focus on the coming reversal. We must focus on the consistent challenge. And we must focus on the character of God. These are the focal points of faith. And I want you to take these away. So let's start with our first point. We must focus on the coming reversal. And I draw this point from verses 9 through 12 in our text, if you're following along, all right? 
Now, as we opened our series in the book of James last week, we noted that the apostle opened with an important word on the testing of our faith. When we face situations in which we have to make a decision between loyalty to God or loyalty to the spirit of the age. And we noted last week that James is going to press this very issue of testing into a variety of situations because James sees all of the situations of our lives as testing. They reveal what's really going on in our hearts. That's what a test does. It shows us what we really got going on in our hearts. And immediately after introducing the major theme of testing, he jumps right in to apply this to our attitudes with respect to wealth, a theme that he'll return to later to, to develop a little bit more. In verses 9 through 12, James says this, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with his scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Wealth is a test. According to James, wealth is a test. It, it, it forces you into a decision where you have to choose between loyalty to God and loyalty to the spirit of the age. And it's important to note in this text that the early Christian communities to whom James was writing almost certainly were made up of mostly poor and socially marginalized people. That's important. Lowly in this text equals socially marginalized and or poor. James wants to encourage these lowly brothers and sisters, reminding them of the coming reversal in the end when God judges the earth. Because you know what it's like to look around and you see the wealthy of the world and you say, man, life must be good for them. And to covet it, to long for it, to want it, to be drawn and enticed by it. James recognizes that and he's telling these marginalized and or poor brothers and sisters, don't, don't long for what they have. Because wealth is dangerous. Wealth is dangerous. And James wants to encourage them. He wants to remind them of the coming reversal. And this is why the language of the prophet in the in the language of the prophet Isaiah, this is why the gospel is good news for the poor. This is why it's good news for the poor. And this truth is of such biblical priority that Jesus connected it to his own spirit-empowered ministry that he had the spirit upon him to bring good news to the poor. The gospel is good news for the poor because there is a coming reversal. Jesus connected this to his own ministry. Jesus identified with the lowly by becoming lowly. He preached good news to the lowly. He honored the lowly. He cared for the lowly. He died for the lowly. 
He rose for the lowly. He ascended for the lowly, and he now intercedes for the lowly. And one day, he will exalt the lowly. He will, Jesus identifies with the lowly in solidarity. And for some strange reason, in many Christian circles in America, that truth is rejected. It's rejected to their folly, though. It's folly to not see this in the text. Jesus identifies with the lowly. And honestly, the gospel is reversal through and through. It's not just about the forgiveness of your sins, though it is that. What do you see in the gospel? You see the reversal where he who was rich for your sake became poor. Why? So that you who were poor could become rich. Jesus turns everything right side up because you know since Genesis 3, the world has been tipped upside down. Jesus turns it right side up and it seems strange to us. But Jesus is trying to give us a sense of who we are to become as his community. Jesus graciously endured the trials of his reversal so that he could bring the lowly a glorious reversal. James has integrated this wisdom and this gospel into his own life and into his own ministry, and he wants us to do the same. This is why James tells the Christians of low social standing and meager financial resources to boast in their coming exaltation. They will become rich. They're saying, you might see me now, and I'm broke down. You may see me now on the margins of society. You may see me in a situation now where, where I'm disenfranchised and, and I don't have two nickels to rub together. But I will one day be rich. I shall wear a crown. James wants to give them this perspective. But here's an important point, y'all. This, does, this truth does not lead James to passively tolerate the conditions of the lowly. That's important to note. He expects the coming reversal to focus our faith now. When lowly or socially marginalized Christians focus their faith on the coming reversal, they gain hope and endurance. When wealthy Christians focus their faith on the coming reversal, they gain sobriety repentance, generosity, simplicity, humility, and a new way of relating to the lowly in solidarity, love, and care. But why does James, in verse 10, tell the rich to boast in their humiliation? What's going on here? It can be a little confusing, right? It seems that James is not envisioning wealthy Christians in this passage. So I just referred to wealthy Christians as a contemporary application. But in this text, I don't think that James is referring to wealthy Christians here. Again, the community to whom James was writing was mostly poor folk. And he seems to be speaking with a withering irony into that context in which the unbelieving rich were oppressing these lowly believers. So what I think James is saying is this. Let the lowly believer boast in their coming exaltation by God. 
But let the rich continue to boast in their unjustly gained and unjustly held riches. God will sort them out in the end. Go ahead, let them boast. Let them have their day. Think about it. We're talking about eternal realities. And they're going to spend this little sliver of their life living it up. And the long run, they will be debased. But you spend this little sliver struggling and suffering for the sake of Jesus. And your joy will be everlasting. Focus on the coming reversal. They will be humiliated on the day of judgment. Money and social status will mean nothing on that day. So focus your faith. That's what James is saying. Now the question is, how, how do we, who live in relative economic prosperity, apply this passage? You may be broke here, but all you need to do is think about the global picture, and you realize most of us in America are wealthy. Let's just I, I won't generalize to America. In this room, I know y'all, most of us in here are wealthy. You don't think of yourself as wealthy, but you're wealthy according to what James means here. How do you apply this? How do we work this out? Should we as believers divest ourselves of as much money as we can? Or should we just disregard James as impractical, hyperbolic, and unrealistic? Many people either divest or they disregard. But here's the thing. Both of these approaches fail to wrestle with the central issue of wealth that James is after. He's calling us to self-examination concerning our attitudes around wealth. It can't be the ground for your peace and your confidence. It can't. It can't be the basis of your self-worth and your identity. It's not to be used to place yourself over others. You know, I'm a baller and a shot caller, brush your shoulders up, you know, you know how I get down, you know, I'm not like them, right? Like, no, that's not how money is to be used. I think we can see in James a calculated ambivalence toward wealth. Calculated ambivalence toward wealth. We can appreciate having the resources to buy food, shelter, and clothing, and to be generous. Wealth, per se, is not evil. However, wealth is not the indicator that our culture makes it out to be. It's not an indicator of a person's value. It's not necessarily an indicator of a person's work ethic. There are plenty of lazy rich people and plenty of hardworking poor people. It's not even a sure indicator of God's blessing in the New Testament. Let that settle in. Your money is not necessarily a blessing. We'll talk about that in another day. <laughs> but wealth is most certainly a trial of our faith that reveals our loyalties. Along with a few recent commentators, I see verse 12 as a summary of verses 9 through 11 rather than an introduction to the following verses. In other words, the crown of life will be bestowed not on those marked by the pride of wealth, but by the humility and love of faith. That's who receives the crown of life. 
So if we would be wise in our dealings with wealth and with the socially marginalized, we must focus our faith on the coming reversal. But we must also focus our faith on the consistent challenge, which brings us to our second point. We must focus on the consistent challenge. You find this point drawn from verses 13 through 15. James's words about trial and how God uses trial to reveal what's going on in our hearts could lead the reader to think that God is being unfair or that James is contradicting himself. But James maintains a distinction between the external presentation of a trial and the internal inclination in a trial. James holds a distinction between those two. Put another way, James sees a difference between the external push of our circumstances, how our circumstances push on us, and the internal pull of our own desires and our sinful hearts. That's what he sees. He sees this distinction. And James is here speaking of the internal pull of our hearts. And he's saying that God is not responsible for our internal pull to disloyalty, even if he is responsible for the external presentation of a trial. That's an important distinction for you to understand. God doesn't make you sin. I once heard a Christian say God created sin so that he could show us his mercy. And I said, what kind of foolishness is that? That ain't nowhere in the Bible. God is not the author of sin or evil. In our theological framework, we talk about the importance of second causes. We can come to that another time. Get, buy me a cup of coffee or some other beverage and we'll talk about second causes, right? That simply means that your choices matter. We're not fatalists. Like, I might as well not even make a decision. It's already, God's already decided everything that's going to happen. No, your agency matters. Your choices matter. And they come together with the providence of God. It's called concurrence. Come on, Doc. It's called concurrence, all right? I'm going to get one witness in here, all right? <laughs> I just got to drop some of those things on you every once in a while to let you know there's a lot going on behind the scene, okay? There's a lot going on here. James, in verses 13 through 15, if you're trying to understand what this text is teaching, he's talking about the internal pool and how we are responsible for the internal pool of our hearts in the times of trial. One Jewish sage named Sirach, not to be confused with Puff Daddy's vodka brand, <laughs> Sirach was a Jewish sage, and he put it like this in his wisdom writings. He said, do not say the Lord was responsible for my sinning, for he is never the cause of what he hates. When God ordains external pressure, it is never intended to lure you to sin, but to reveal your heart and to give you an opportunity to repent and to turn for him to wisdom, to turn to him for wisdom. James here wants us to focus on the consistent challenge that we face in the life of faith. And that challenge is to shift our focus from external pressures to the difficult inner work that spiritual vitality requires. Now, let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about, the difficulty. This is the consistent challenge. Have you ever been in a swimming pool and tried to push a beach ball underwater? How much effort it takes to try and force it down, and then the minute you stop making effort, it pops right back up to the surface. That's how many of us are in our spiritual lives. We live at the surface level, 
And it's very difficult for us to press down in to do the inner work. It's emotionally exhausting. If you've ever met with a counselor or a therapist, which I highly recommend, you know, you come out of that work, you'd be like, God, dog, I feel like I done fought Mike Tyson right now. You come out, head all swole up, you're like, I don't know. The counselor just gave me some work to do, some homework, right? Inner work is hard work to press down deep into your desires and your motivations and and your longings and and what your heart loves. That is the hard work. It's a consistent challenge to not live on the external and to judge your your spiritual state by the externals. When we face trials, it is often the case that our first instinct is to go into problem solving mode. How do I get out of this situation in as quick and painless a way as possible? Do I have anyone out there who who knows what it's like to respond to troubles like that? Oh, I'm the only one? All right, all right. Well, in case anyone finds themselves in that place at some point, here's the deal. (laughs) When you go into problem-solving mode, of course, the problem is with this approach, when when your gut reaction, when your instinct is to go into problem-solving mode, The problem is that you can successfully get out of many situations without even the smallest bit of spiritual growth or change. I'm going to say that again. The problem with the gut level instinct to go into problem solving mode is that you can solve the problem without ever going through any personal change or transformation. Because you can face that external difficulty in a surface level without attending to your heart and doing the difficult inner work. James Baldwin once said that the horror is that America changes all the time without ever changing at all. Jimmy. Jimmy hit him. That's what James Baldwin said about America. James the Apostle tells us that the same reality is possible for professing Christians. (laughs) It's possible to change all the time without ever changing at all when you disregard the centrality of your inner life. You can change careers without a change of heart. You can change certain habits without a change of heart. You can change your community without a change of heart. You know, there have been people who have sojourned with us for a time. And when they came in, they were swollen with pride. And they determined that we were the problem. And they left swollen with pride. You can change without ever changing. In times of trial, if you are not focused on the consistent challenge of identifying your heart's desires and submitting those desires to the Lord, and making decisions based on who you must become as God's beloved, you're in a dangerous place. I'm going to say that one more time. In times of trial, if you are not focused on the consistent challenge of identifying your heart's desires, submitting those desires to the Lord, and making decisions based on who you must become as God's beloved, then you're in a dangerous place. James shows us the trajectory when we leave our desires unexamined in times of trial. Look at verses 14 through 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is the terrifying trajectory of consistently thinking about external realities to the neglect of your inner life. What's more is that this externalism is not just a problem in times of trial. Externalism is dangerous when you're doing the work of ministry as well. It's possible to do good things in Jesus' name while neglecting Jesus himself. In Matthew 7, Jesus puts it in a stunning way when he says this. He says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? We preached sermons and we taught those who didn't have theological education. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Do you see it's possible to do many good things without attending to your inner life and to ultimately head on a trajectory to judgment? Our capacity for self-deception can only be addressed by attending to our inner life. And this is especially the case in trials. In the times of trial and temptation, true faith says... Lord, would you give me wisdom to remain loyal to you in this trial? And as I discover the desires of my heart, would you give me grace to submit these desires to you with perfect confidence in your love for me, your provision for me, and your plans for me? That's what true faith prays in the times of trial. As Coach Irwin tells me almost every workout, it's time under tension that produces strength. God wants to make us strong, but that takes time under tension. Time under tension is what brings strength. We must focus on the consistent challenge of getting beneath the surface to examine our hearts, our motivations, our drivers, our thoughts, our attitudes, our cultural biases. But finally, we must also focus on the character of God. Our final point. We must focus on the character of God. And you find this in verses 16 through 18. On Monday of this week, uh, Elder Evan Willett and I met up to catch up. And uh, I said to him when we first, you know, got on the phone, uh, got on the Zoom, I said, hey, man, how you doing? He's like, good, man. You know, God blesses all of us. Some of us actually know this. I said, you better preach, elder. I said, that's a word. I said, let me type that down. Let me type that down. This is the essence of what James wants his people to understand as he bridges into this next section. He says, verses 16 through 18, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. 
Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James wants us to notice that we are blessed and to recognize the source. Now check out what he does here. In verses 13 through 14, James tells us that our hearts are the source of the sin that brings forth death. But in this section, James tells us that God's heart is the source of every good and perfect gift. He's the changeless source of a light so glorious that it produces no shadow. He's the source of the gospel word of truth. And he's the source of our life in Christ. And this should cure us of the delusions of meritocracy. Meritocracy, the idea that everyone gets what they deserve based upon their hard work or their worthiness, should find no place in the Christian vocabulary or framework. Because we're a people that recognizes that all that we have is a gift. Everything, your talent, gift. Your opportunity, gift. The fact you ain't going crazy, gift. Your ability to manage all of your responsibilities and keep the things going, gift. As Paul puts it to the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? You see, meritocratic ideas lead us to pride, but it also leads us to mistreatment of the lowly. Because we presume that they're in their place because they weren't hard workers like us. Do you know what kind of providence and goodness came into your life to bring you to the place where you have food and clothing and shelter on the regular? That's all of grace. It's not because you're an amazing person. James is teaching us that we must focus on the character of God to ground our souls in the times of trial because even in the trials, he's determined to give good and perfect gifts. You know, when I was growing up in the black church, church mothers used to say it like this. This is black church wisdom right here. They would say, baby... Even when you can't trace his hand, you can trust his heart. When you don't know what God is up to in your life, when he seems to be wrecking everything in your plans, when you find yourself in a place that you never guaranteed on being in a million years, and you're like, God, what's going on? When you can't trace his hand of providence, you can trust his heart that he's after your good that he wants to mature you, that he wants to deepen you, that he wants to send you, that he wants to bless you with something more than what you were after. I'm reminded of this time where I was, Tiana was just an itty-bitty baby. She was was three three years old or something like that. She could talk. Lord, she could talk. (laughs) She's watching now. And I asked her to go upstairs and get something for me. And I said, if you do it, I'll give you a quarter. And so she said, a quarter? I said, yeah, babe, I'll give you a quarter. 
So she goes upstairs, you know, little fatherly bribe, you know, sometimes you got to deploy it like that. She ran upstairs, and then she came down with the item I wanted. And when I reached into my pocket, I realized I ain't have a quarter. <laughs> All I had was a $5 bill. And so I gave her the $5 bill. She looked at that $5 bill, and she said, but daddy, I wanted a quarter. I said, girl, do you know how many quarters are in that $5 bill? You better take this $5 bill, get out of my face. Listen, sometimes what we're after in life is the quarter. But through trials, God's trying to give you the $5 bill. He's trying to give you his riches. He's trying to load you up with his fullness. So trust his heart. The wise, the faithful live lives marked by humble gratitude. Not focused in a negative filtering kind of way where all you pick out of life are the things that aren't going your way or the things that are frustrating to you. Now you need to get rid of the negative filter and you need to start being able to identify the blessings, the goodness, the faithfulness, the kindness, the new mercies every day. That's what faith looks like. The Apostle James has given us these scriptural shock ads to stop us in our tracks and to compel us to consider the gravity of distracted faith and the urgency of a focused faith. If he has offended us with the truth, it's only to keep us from suffering the certain tragedy that awaits those of a distracted faith when the reversal comes. And where do we get the sustaining grace and the motivation for a focused faith? Is my, is my word to you today, try harder. You know, you got to get it together. You got to try harder. You got you to knuckle down and you got to get your stuff together. No, that's not the message. Do you know where we get the resources for this life? Do you know? We have to remember that we have a focused Savior. He set his focus on seeking and saving the lost. He set his focus on bringing many sons and daughters to glory. He set his focus on the redemption of the entire created order. He is focused on you as your great high priest and your mediator. And because you know of his great focus in your redemption, that is all the energy you need to focus your faith for his glory and your good. So how do we apply this? Take time to honestly evaluate your relationship to wealth. You need to take some time. It's serious. Evaluate your relationship to wealth. Seek wisdom. Seek repentance. Seek new practices. For example, this is just by way of an example. It's the first thing that comes to mind right now. When Vanessa and I first got married, we were in seminary. And I remember reading a commentary. I knew at that time that everything I have belongs to God. Yes, of course I know that, right? But I read in a commentary when I was in my first year of semin seminary, this one commentator talked about how he and his wife, every year of their life together, decided to increase their giving annually by some percentage, constantly, so that they would always be growing in generosity, not remaining flat. 
can I tell you, that hit me like a ton of bricks. And so Vanessa and I decided to do that. And I'm going to tell you, when I tell y'all on a regular basis that you can't outgive the Lord, I'm, I'm testifying. I'm not declaring a truth from Scripture isolated from my own personal experience of that truth. I can tell you from personal experience, you cannot outgive the Lord. Trust him with your wealth. Examine your attitudes toward wealth. But spend some time there. Two, pray that in every trial that you're facing right now, the Lord would give you wisdom to remain loyal to him and to pray that as you discover the desires of your heart, that he would give you the grace to submit those desires to him with perfect confidence in his love for you, his provision for you, and his plans for you. Let your trials lead you to do the inner work and reject the impulse to focus on the externals exclusively. You know, when you find yourself complaining about the situation that you're in, but you're not investigating your own heart, make it a practice to never complain without digging in to do the inner work. And in fact, just don't complain. How about that, right? There's a difference between complaining and lament. That's another sermon. Third, I want to encourage you to choose gratitude. The word has a, the the world has enough complaining and negative filtering going on. But let the children of the light shine through our gratitude, pointing our friends, neighbors, and coworkers to the source of every good and perfect gift. Amen. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.